Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. Hey, Merry Christmas Eve. If it's your first time with us and we haven't met, my name is David. I get to serve as one of the teaching pastors here. And we are continuing a series called The Christmas Tree, where we have been looking at the family tree of Jesus. Now, as it relates to a Christmas tree, I opened the series by asking a question I'm going to ask today for anyone who wasn't there. And this is a crowd participation question. So in the room, we are divided into a couple camps as it relates to the Christmas trees in our home. If you got the fake Christmas trees, you got the frosted Christmas trees, you got the real Christmas trees. By show of hands, who in here is a part of the fake Christmas tree people? Okay, clearly vast, vast majority of the room in there. Anyone in the uh, frosted Christmas tree? You do the frosted, frosted mini wheats version of the tree. This, this group has always intrigued me because it's like the collision of the fake and the real combined. You're, you're putting artificial stuff on the outside of a real tree. Then there's the real Christmas tree group. Who are my real Christmas tree people? Man, it is shocking. Three for three, a disproportionate number of the real Christmas tree people sit over here. Anyone that cuts down their Christmas tree, like your tradition and you go as a family and you go cut it down. Okay, okay, some in the back, some over there. Mom is putting the hand down, like that's not true, we don't do that. Uh, My family loves a good real Christmas tree. We don't cut ours down. For the same reason, we don't churn our own butter and we get out of the store. It's just more efficient. And as it relates to the real group or the real Christmas tree group, sometimes people will describe the real Christmas tree as a a living tree. And one thing that is for sure not true about a real Christmas tree that's in any of our homes is it is not living for sure. The moment its roots were cut from the ground, it became a formerly living Christmas tree. And now it is a dead Christmas tree and given enough time in any of our homes, anyone that has a real one, even probably already, you're beginning to see the effects of the fact that it was cut off from the roots, cut off from the source of life and its limbs and those ornaments get a little lower every single day, a little more pine needles to pick up because the effects of it being cut off from the source of life are beginning to show. And we've used that as an analogy of really what happened to our world when sin entered, when Sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden, death entered with it, and our world was cut off from its roots or connection to the source of life, which is God. And we see the effects in all of our lives and see the effects around us in the world around us. And the mission of Jesus and the gospel message was to restore and reconnect this world that is dying or or been cut off from the source of life back to God, who is the source of life. One of the more popular songs of the season even describes our world in a way that that aligns with this, where it says, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. It's a lyric from the song, Oh Holy Night. Most of us don't use the word pining very often, but pining is essentially a word that means wasting away. The world is wasting away till he appeared, till Jesus came in a thrill of hope. That song, Oh Holy Night, is a song that was written in the 1840s in France. And it's a song of hope that so deeply resonated with people that it wildly quickly became a global success. There's something about that song that just really connected with the hearts of people of despite the fact they're wasting away, this thrill of hope came when the Savior appeared. 
It became such a success and sung in America and sung in Germany and sung in France and sung all over the world that 20 years later, during a Franco-Prussian war between France and Germany, these troops were fighting in a battle. And on Christmas Eve night, in the middle of that war, a French soldier stood up and began to sing, O Holy Night. Quickly, other soldiers joined him on the French side and shockingly, on the opposite side, soldiers began to sing, stars are brightly shining. It's the night of our dear Savior's birth. Both, song, or both sides singing this song and a 24-hour ceasefire was called. A song of hope had interrupted a war. Interestingly enough, 36 years later in 1906, there was a guy named Thomas Edison and a colleague of his that was working on a brand new invention called the radio. And this was an invention that would give them the ability to not transmit Morse code, which was common at the time, but to transmit words or even music through the airwaves. And they came together and decided that they would release the very first radio transmission. And lo and behold, what was the song that they chose? Oh, holy night. December 24th, 1906. The message of hope had interrupted a war. It interrupted the airwaves then. And at Christmas, we celebrate the fact that hope has interrupted our world. The arrival of Jesus to a world that was wasting away had hope interrupted in Jesus' coming. And hope's a message that all of us, no matter the season that we're in, need. And today, I want to look at some of the stories we've been walking through and the reason for why, as followers of Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, we have hope. And at Christmas, we celebrate how God interrupted our world with hope. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. If you have a Bible, you can flip there. And we'll look at Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2. And I'm going to recap for a lot of us who haven't been here as we've walked through Jesus's family tree. And then we're going to look at the Christmas story, the birth of Christ, and then look at the wise men and the arrival of those wise men. Then we'll wrap out. Everybody can head out and go to a nice brunch, whatever's next. See the cowboys, take down the dolphins. And if you've been with us, we've been looking at Matthew's family tree. Now, Matthew's a gospel, and Matthew was a follower of Jesus, and Matthew begins to write out the genealogy of Jesus in chapter 1. And he writes it out, and this would have been normal at the time if you were going to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Being able to prove the lineage of the Messiah was very important. In other words, Jesus had to be, or the Messiah would be, related to certain people. So Matthew's going to write out the genealogy, the lineage of Jesus. He's writing out the family tree of Jesus. But he does something very interesting in doing so. As we've said week after week, it's as though he goes out of his way to highlight some of the more broken branches on the family tree of Jesus. Most of us would be tempted to hide those branches, but Matthew highlights them in a very peculiar way. We'll look at it here in a second, but he does the opposite of what most of us do when introducing ourselves or getting to know someone early in a relationship. In other words, uh, you know, if you're dating somebody in the room right now and you're early in your relationship, I mean, you're a few dates in, maybe you just kind of started to become official here. Here's one thing that for sure is not going to happen. You more than likely are not spending Christmas with the person that you're dating. If this is a fresh relationship, you got to make sure that relationship is strong enough to handle that before you're welcomed into seeing all the craziness of their family. That they're not having you over to, you know, meet their uncle who talks with a British accent, despite the fact that he's not from Britain, or the grandma or crazy aunt who, you know, don't, do not, whatever you do, eat her brownies. That person, they want to keep as far away before that relationship is ready to handle. 
And Matthew does the opposite. From the jump, page one, he begins to go, hey, here's some of the more broken people that made up the family tree of Jesus. We've said week after week, it's because Matthew knew they weren't just part of the family. They were, in essence, the point of the story that he was about to write about Jesus, the savior of the world, the God who came from sinners and came for sinners because every person is a broken sinner. So we've looked at different stories of those and I just wanna recap some of those. And the first idea that we celebrate at Christmas is that there is hope for sinners. The message of Jesus and the message Matthew showcases in chapter one is there is hope for sinners. Matthew goes through the family tree and really highlights this, where he introduces some of the stories and he goes out of his way to bring up uh, artifacts or to bring up incidences he had no reason or did not have to bring up. What I mean, well, you look at Matthew chapter one, verse two, it says, Jacob was the father of Judah. Brings up one of the first characters on the tree, Jacob and Judah. And then he says, and his brothers. Now, Judah and his brothers, as a reminder, Jacob had 12 sons. Years and years before Jesus, Jacob is a patriarch in the family of God, and Jacob has 12 sons. God could have chosen any one of those 12 to be the one the Messiah would come through. You would think, well, he probably would choose the one with the most integrity or the one that had uh, special reasons why it would make sense. He'll be the one that the line of the Messiah would come through. And yet, when it comes to Judah, the opposite is true. If anything, the brother who should have been chosen out of the 12, and there was a lot of them, was the brother Joseph. Joseph was the man who most clearly showed his integrity. Joseph was Judah's younger brother. But Judah and his other 11 brothers or the other 10 brothers decided because they didn't like Joseph or were jealous of him, Judah hatched a plan. Hey, we're going to sell our younger brother, Joseph, into slavery. They were going to take his clothes, bring him back to dad and lie to our father and say, man, Joseph, something happened. I guess he died. And this is the guy that God would say, you're the one. The Messiah will come through. Judah's story doesn't get any better from there. In fact, the next verse tells us an interesting fact about Judah. It says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, his twins, whose mother was Tamar. Now, I don't know how many of us were spending a lot of time in Genesis 38 this week, where we look at the story of Tamar, but this is perhaps one of the more scandalous of all the stories that these two twin boys that would be the line that would come through, come through Judah in a relationship with a woman named Tamar. Now, what was that relationship? I really can't go fully into it because there's children in the room, but it's by far the most Jerry Springer-like relationship in all of the family tree. I'll just lay out who the people were. Judah was the father-in-law of a woman named Tamar, his daughter-in-law. And yet through the story, they have twins that become a part of the family line of Jesus. Why? God, you could have chose anyone. Why from this relationship that never should have happened would you choose the savior of the world to come to them? Because Matthew knew, which is why he highlights, they're not just part of the family, they're the point that Jesus came from broken sinners because there's only broken sinners. Which is good news and gives real hope to all of us who are sinners. Because at Christmas, we celebrate the reality there's hope for sinners. Not just that. I mean, it doesn't improve much from there. It says, verse 5, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab 
We're told her story in Joshua chapter two, and we see it throughout the book of Joshua. Rahab had chosen a profession as a job. She had chosen arguably the oldest profession on earth. Rahab was a prostitute. Not only that, she wasn't an Israelite. She wasn't Jewish. And she had become a prostitute for her profession, living in Jericho. Until, by faith, she got welcomed into the family of God. God could have chose anyone, and he chose Rahab the prostitute to be a part, to be the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus, the savior of the world. Jesus would die on a cross with the blood of a prostitute running through his veins. <laughs> I think Matthew who walked with Jesus and knew firsthand just what God was like with a smile on his face is riding through. And then there was Rahab. He goes out of his way. He doesn't need to mention women and genealogies and he's bringing it up because he knows this is the point. Our God is a God who comes for sinners, which means there is hope for sinners at Christmas. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, another pagan foreign woman. And then David was the father of Solomon and perhaps the most intriguing data point of all the different things Matthew writes is found here. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And even think of the phrasing that he uses to include this part of the story. I mean, if you're not familiar, David would have a relationship with a woman named Bathsheba. Now, this relationship was prohibited by God because Bathsheba was already married. And David, out of that relationship and out of that sin, ends up that Bathsheba's pregnant. And in order to cover up that sin, he could have confessed and come clean that he he had had an inappropriate relationship with another man's wife. Instead of coming clean, he kills this other man, who happened to be one of his close friends, one of his 30 mighty men. Matthew goes out of his way to point out the worst decision that David ever made, a decision that brought tons of destruction into David's life. One of the greatest regrets that David would ever have. And he doesn't just say, hey, whose mother was Bathsheba? He says, whose mother, remember, had been another man's wife. What are you doing, Matthew? It's highlighting the good news of Christmas is there is hope for sinners because that's all that any of us are. Broken, sinful people. And as I said, Matthew spent three years walking with Jesus. Matthew knew firsthand how God transcends and transforms the labels that we carry, the sins in our past, the decisions that we've made. How do I know that? Because Matthew, one day, he also had a label that he carried. It wasn't Matthew the prostitute. He was Matthew the tax collector until he met Jesus. He's sitting there at a tax collecting booth and this Messiah or this rabbi that everyone's talking about walks up to his table and says, Matthew, everyone has rejected you but I haven't. I want a relationship with you. I saw firsthand how Jesus transforms the labels, the decisions, the past, the sin in our life and redefines us by our relationship to him. He knew firsthand the message of Christmas, which is there is hope for sinners. We see then in the Christmas story, further why there's hope for sinners. It says this, Matthew chapter one, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, so they're engaged. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. This is a real event that really happened, 
And I want you to put yourself in the shoes of this young engaged couple. We're just told about this young engaged couple, maybe weeks away from the wedding, maybe months away from the wedding. And Mary shows up at Joseph's door and says, hey, Joseph, we, hey, we need to talk. And there's something you need to know. And begins to say, hey, I'm pregnant. And if you're Joe, you're sitting there going, well, you're not by me pregnant. And your heart's got to be breaking. You're engaged and you find out weeks before you're about to be married that the, the person, your fiance is pregnant. And then she says, and it's God's baby. I mean, if you're Joseph, what would you do? I mean, he's now going, I'm heartbroken. I just found out my fiance is not only unfaithful, she's also crazy. <laughs> Thinking that God's the father. So because he was a righteous man, we're told that Joseph was going to divorce her quietly. You had to end an engagement through a divorce in those days. It says this, but because Joseph was faithful to the law, and yet he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is in fact from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus, Yeshua, it literally means God, save now. That this child will save people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet in Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That Jesus would be born of a virgin. Larry King, the great interviewer who interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people over his life, was once asked, if you could interview anyone in history, who would it be and what would you ask them? He very quickly responded and said, I would interview Jesus, the one that people claim to be the Messiah. And I would have one question, only one question for him. Were you really born of a virgin? For me, that changes everything. The Messiah would be born of a virgin. The good news at Christmas we celebrate is he was indeed born of a virgin. Joseph awakens, verse 24, woke up. And he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. And he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him, the son, the name Jesus. In the midst of all their wedding planning, hope interrupted. Providing an unplanned pregnancy, the two would walk through. Ironically, an unplanned pregnancy that was the most planned pregnancy in the history of the world. The arrival of Jesus the savior who would save people from their sins. The reason we have hope at Christmas and that sinners can have hope is because there is hope through a savior. The reason we have hope as sinners is not because of wishful thinking. We can declaratively have hope because it is hope that comes through a savior, that God sent a savior, that Jesus was called to be the savior of the world. He would save his people, save all people who trust in him from their sins. God didn't send a second chance. He didn't send a sermon. He didn't send a list of rules to follow. He didn't send a bunch of things to get done. He sent a savior. Why? Because he knew that we are incapable of saving ourselves. The only reason you need a savior is if you cannot save yourselves. The message of the Bible is not try harder, be a better person, go to church more often, give more, 
cuss less. It is trust in Jesus as the payment for your sins on that cross. You would see yourself as incapable of having and earning a relationship with God, which is what the Bible teaches, which is why God had to send a savior. Now, why did he have to be born a virgin? It's an interesting thing. Well, for a couple of reasons. One, because Jesus, if he was born from Joseph directly, would have had the seed of Joseph, which include, entailed the sin nature. Jesus was perfection. He was born without a sin nature. He had a divine nature. He's both fully God and fully man. And that divine nature was eternal. As fully God, Jesus was eternal, which means he could be and alone could be the savior because the payment for sin is an eternal payment. The wages of sin, every sin in your life, in my life, every sin that any person has ever committed will be paid for by an eternal payment. Either someone will pay for their sins for all of eternity, or there will be an eternal God who becomes man and dies in their place, providing an eternal payment, which God through Christ has done for anyone who would trust and receive that gift. And there's a lot of family in the room. There's a lot of people in the room. I, I am under no assumption that everyone in here has received that gift. In fact, I would assume there's many of us that haven't. And the reason you're here is because God loves you so much. He sent a savior and you can have hope at Christmas and hope in life by trusting in him. Could it be that he's that good? He's not here to control you, condemn you, that the God who is there desires a relationship with you to the degree that he would give his own life on a cross. My son, uh, a few years ago, we were watching Christmas movies and we'll watch them from time to time. And there was a movie that I played that I had no idea this was going to lead to months and months and months of like nightmares happening, of him screaming out in the middle of the night and me having to come in there and, hey, no, it's fine. Everything's going to be okay. And, and it, it kind of caught me off guard. It was a movie called Arthur Christmas. It's a silly movie. It's a cartoon. Uh, uh, there's a moment in the movie where Santa is going into this child's house and he finds himself in the kid's bedroom and the kid wakes up. And so Santa hits the ground and goes underneath the bed. Now, it's like harmless. That's cute, sweet. Kid goes back to sleep, Santa exits. Little did I know that my son for the next six months would have terrors every night that, oh my, what if Santa broke into the house? What if he's under the bed? Dad, please come check the bed. Are you sure Santa's not in here right now? What's he gonna do to me? And it's like, oh man, this is so ironic that man whose entire premise is I'm here to bring you gifts and good things. You are terrified, uh, which kind of makes sense, I guess, of like, hey, there's a guy who's going to break into the house and, you know, he may be downstairs at any point. But as it relates to our faith, sadly, a lot of people have that type of perspective on God. Oh no, this person who is here to bring good, I'm afraid he's here to take from me. I'm afraid he's here to hurt me in a much less silly way that people think, oh man, God is here to rip me off or God doesn't want what's best for me or God doesn't really desire a relationship and really care for me. He's here to take from me or potentially hurt me. And the message emphatically we see of Jesus and the gospel and God is God isn't there to control, condemn, to care. He cares for you. And we have hope through a savior that song I mentioned, A Holy Night, it has a lyric of the, the soul felt its worth. He appeared and the soul felt its worth. Christmas is the reminder of the reality of your worth to God. How do you know your worth to God? Well, I don't know if you remember economics back in college or 
if you ever took classes like that, the explanation for how valuable something is, is the value of a thing is determined by the price it will bring. The value of something is determined by what someone's going to pay for it. That I could say, hey, this phone is worth a billion dollars. And you'd go, no, it's not. Unless somebody was willing to pay that. Then it would be worth a billion dollars to that person. Because the value of a thing, something's worth, is depicted in the price it will bring, what someone is willing to pay. How do you know the value that you are to God or how worthy or how much worth you have to God? What price was he willing to pay? The life of his own son that he would send as a baby to be born to die for you and for me. That's the worth of your soul that you can know because of Christ that we have because we have hope as sinners because it is hope through a savior. And then finally, we get to Matthew chapter two and we see the last part of the Christmas story depicted. And it's a part of the story that many of us have in our nativities, which spoiler alert, should not be in our nativities because it didn't happen at the same time as the night of Jesus, but it did happen in the town of Bethlehem a few months afterwards involving the Magi or wise men. It says this, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, your translation may say wise men, came from the east to Jerusalem. And they asked, coming to Jerusalem, and they're asking around saying, where's the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. His men that came from the east, around the area of Persia, modern day Iran, get on camels, follow a star, they arrive at Jerusalem, they begin asking around town, where is the new baby king? We've come to worship him. Herod is the king of that day. This was during the time of King Herod. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. What we know about King Herod from extra biblical writings and even biblical writings is King Herod was essentially crazy. He was incredibly paranoid, afraid of somebody else taking the throne from him. Now you've got this group that's shown up from faraway land saying, hey, we're here to see the new king, the new baby king. And so of course it says, he's disturbed all of Jerusalem with him. This is the example of if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And if Herod ain't happy, nobody's happy that he's terrorizing the city. And it says that the, Herod, verse seven, he called the Magi secretly. He found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report it to me so that I too may go and murder and worship him. We find out later in the story, that's exactly what Herod wanted to do. He says, hey, you go find him and then come back and tell me exactly where this new baby king is. On coming to the house, talking about the Magi, they leave and they go to find the child and they arrive at the house and they saw the child, likely a toddler, a toddler king. He was there with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. They opened their treasures and presented him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Another dream shows up, don't go back to Herod. He doesn't want to find the location to worship this Jesus. He wants to find the location to kill, to put to death this new toddler king. It's fascinating. It's a beautiful story. And it's also incredibly bizarre. And it showcases the heart of God 
and the hope that we have, which is for all people. Why do I say that? Think about what just happened. God shows up to some men in the Middle East, living in Persia, Iran today, and has a star appear that leads them to come and worship this new baby king who would be the savior, the Messiah of the world. I mean, these men were not Jewish. But God goes out of his way to pursue these magi, this caravan of maybe men and women, this group of people drawn from afar by God. I mean, this totally blew the categories of a lot of first century Jews who thought, hey, God really, he really loves the Jews. He, you know, he kind of likes everybody, but he really loves the Jews. If God's in heaven, he's definitely going, give me a J, give me an E, give me a W, I'm here for the Jews. And this flies in the face of that. God was pursuing these Middle Eastern Magi wise men, drawing them, and not just that, likely had been drawing in at work hundreds and hundreds of years before. Why do I say that? You know there's one other mention of a Magi in the Bible? His name is Daniel. Daniel lived 700 years before Jesus and was exiled to the area that these men came from. He joined a group called the Magi. As a part of that group, Daniel was welcomed into the king's court and the wise men, and Daniel taught about the Torah or would have talked about his faith, and quite perhaps, that hundreds and hundreds of years later, that lineage of Daniel's influence in that same area led to some men having some text, having some influence, having some understanding of Daniel's God, and then following a star to go find and worship that God. You could say hundreds of years before, even when Daniel couldn't see it and didn't look like it, that God was decorating for Christmas. The showcase, there's hope for all people. There's hope through a savior, there's hope for all people because of Christmas, and at Christmas, we get to celebrate and worship the same one that these magi did, and it's interesting. We're about to land the plane and get out. The gifts that they give are, are telling. They're symbolic. They give three things, gold, frankincense, myrrh. Gold, symbolic of a king, that Jesus would be a king. This toddler king would one day be the king of kings. Frankincense, symbolic of Jesus being the Great high priest. Frankincense was something that the priests would have burned. It's incense. And then most perplexing, especially if you're Mary, receiving these gifts for her toddler king that these strangers are worshiping, was myrrh. What's myrrh? Myrrh is an embalming agent. It's used to prepare a dead body for burial. This would be like somebody showing up and they give you frankincense, they give you gold, and then they give you an urn or a casket. What went through her mind? What is it symbolically showing? It's showing Jesus would be king, that's gold. Jesus would be the great high priest that allows us to go to God in a relationship with him, that's frankincense. And Jesus would be the sacrifice who would die for you and for me. That Herod wanted to put Jesus to death and end Christmas. But God had another plan. He knew that he was going to put Jesus to death. He was going to, through Christmas, put death to death. And that's exactly what he did. And today we can have genuine faith just like these men by seeing Jesus as king, seeing him as the great high priest and the sacrifice for your life. I mentioned the camp of two different tree groups in the room of real trees and fake trees, but there's another distinguishing couple of groups in the room. It's not just real tree and fake tree. There's also real faith and fake faith in the room. 
What does real faith look like? It looks like these men displaying, hey, Jesus is king in my life. God, you're king. I'm not king. Your kingdom come. It's above my kingdom. I'm not gonna do it perfectly, but God, you're the king of my life. You are the great high priest. You are the only way I can have a relationship with God. I haven't earned it. I don't deserve it. I am unworthy of that, but you have interceded on my behalf. Real faith includes you are the king, you are my priest, and you are my sacrifice. I trust that you died in my place on the cross. You paid for my sin. Everything past, present, future sins, I don't even know I'm going to commit. You paid for them. That's real faith. What's fake faith? Fake faith is, man, I just try to be a good person, and then you can have eternal life. Try to be a good person, you should go to church more, and then you can have a relationship with God. That's fake faith. Good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. That's fake faith. If I just do enough, then I'll earn it. That is fake faith. Oh, I've done too much, so I couldn't have a relationship with God. That's fake faith. My parents were Christian and I was raised in a Christian home, so I guess I'm Christian. That may be fake faith. If you personally have not trusted, Jesus is your savior. When you do, when we welcome him in, Thing begins to change. And each one of these men had a genuine, real faith. And when that happens, Jesus transforms our story, our past, our sin, our present, and writes new stories, gives new titles, gives new names. And each one of these men, as broken as the past that they had was, all of a sudden becomes healed, whole, redeemed, restored, transformed because of the real genuine faith in Jesus. And today there's some of us in the room that you've never received that gift. And God loves you so much. He wants the greatest Christmas Christmas gift you could ever receive to be yours, which is a relationship with him. How ironic that there's one time of the year where in culture, whether you're Christian or not, you hang things on a tree. Ironic because you hang them on a tree to celebrate the birth of one who was born to hang on a tree for you for me, for anyone who will receive that gift. Just as a tree brought sin into the world through Adam and Eve and their disobedience, through a tree, God would end sin in our world. A tree that would become a cross. First Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds we have been healed. You could say the ultimate Christmas tree doesn't look like this. It looks like a cross where your Lord and your Savior, your God and my God was killed and three days later rose again. And so we now have hope. Hope is sinners, hope to a Savior, and a hope that is for all people, which now we those of us who believe get to go and like the angels in Luke 2 at the arrival of Jesus go say and share with the world there is great news of great joy for all the people there is a savior and he's come he's Christ the Lord a thrill of hope thanks for listening we pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus if you found this message helpful feel free to share it with others and leave us a review To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.